0: My name is Scott Kiliansky. I'm a PhD student at UC Irvine. My work deals with the relationship between sleep and memory and trying to figure out what's going on in the brain while we sleep to stabilize our memories. I hope that my work can give us a, a better understanding of how memory in general works in the hopes that, one, we can recreate it artificially I think that would be very cool to have some artificially intelligent systems that could have the same kind of memory that we have. Uh, And also, I'd like to be able to find a way that we can sort of offload our own memories eventually, so that we can recall them on demand later on, especially in the instance that we have some kind of memory impairment later on in our lives, which is natural, but can also be accelerated by disease. Thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life.
1: folks welcome to the this grad life podcast here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge i am your host dr ted Yu. if you can't get enough of science and or dread head down to our official website www.thisgradlife.com there you can read more about this episode's guest finally if you find value in this podcast you can also find links to support us Joining me today is Scott Kiliansky from the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior here at UC Irvine. So we know each other because through various science outreach communications programs, uh, I've done a talk for Bruising Brains when I was still running it, and we keep in touch, and, you know, but we never had the chance to chat, so I'm glad you're here. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a good time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So let's start off by, could you tell us about your work and what you do?
0: So my work is all about trying to understand this relationship between sleep and memory. We've known since really the first uh, rigorous studies on sleep back in the late 19th century and early 20th century. um, Actually uh, we've known since the the first studies on, on memory, not sleep, uh, that sleep is really important for memory. So, there was this study back in the twenties where these guys had people learn stuff in the beginning of the day and then go throughout their day, go to sleep, then get tested in the morning or learn stuff at night, right before they go to sleep, uh, wake up the next day, go throughout their day, then get tested the next night. So it's still 24 hour period. The only thing that shifted is when you learn the stuff relative to when you sleep and what they found is the people who learned the material right before bed, performed a lot better. Uh, that was back in the twenties. I can't remember which year, uh, but that was the first explicit finding that there is this relationship between sleep and memory. A lot of stuff has happened since then. Now we have all of these ideas about how exactly sleep is important for memory. And the main one that I'm working on is this idea that you have neural patterns that represent your memories. And when you go to sleep, they're reactivated. It's like your brain is um, replaying these things. It's like a VCR, if you're old, or a DVD player, or a (laughs) Blu-ray, or a a video MP4, that's uh, replaying over and over again while you sleep. And it's almost like the brain is rehearsing. It's practicing while you sleep to try to stabilize these memories and just stamp them in place. Because if they only get played out once during the day, they're not gonna be that strong. If they get replayed many times during the night, they're going to strengthen up.
1: How does that old adage go?
0: You know, when they, whenever they talk about memory and stuff like that,
1: oh, they'll say, oh, I don't even remember what I ate for breakfast or something like that. Uh, do you think it's somehow suspicious that they say breakfasts and they never say dinner?
0: I've never thought about that. Yeah, everyone says, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. That's a good point. Yeah, but I it's not if, dinner. I wonder if that's where it comes from. Yeah. I mean, the idea, that original study I talked about from the, the 20s is uh, the the idea there, the reason why they thought sleep was important is because uh, your brain can stabilize it. They had no real idea how that was happening, but they, they figured that the brain was somehow stabilizing the information that it just took in, um, and it didn't have anything interfering with it in the interim between when you learned it and when you went to sleep. But- if you learned it in the morning, you had all this stuff throughout the day, all these experiences, people you ran into, classes you went to, whatever the work that you did. That's all interfering with the stuff that you learned earlier. And it's almost like sleep is this uh, breakup period. It's this timeout period, like a halftime of a, a sporting event where you can kind of take everything into – take stock of everything that you have, everything that went through, get it all in place, and then readjust afterwards. Um so, yeah, I wonder. I'm going to start asking people that now. <laughs> what did you, you have for dinner last night? <laughs>
1: right, and see if and they do remember Do you remember that? what
0: you had for breakfast this morning? But,
1: yeah. Hmm. So, then, how are you studying this model? What model are you using and how is that? Uh, could you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, the original studies were done in humans that demonstrate this relationship between sleep and memory, and that's great. That's ultimately the reason that we're interested in it. We want to know how this works in a human being, but all of the evidence that these neural patterns replay, that essentially all comes from animal research, uh, mostly from rodents and mice or uh, um, rats and mice, rodents. So uh, we, use a, we use both actually, rats and mice, uh, and we have them learn a variety of tasks Uh, I have a couple different experiments going on right now, and the main sort of general outline, the skeleton of one of our experiments is you have your rat or your mouse that you've implanted electrodes in so you can record the neural activity. You have them learn some kind of uh, task. It might be navigating through a maze. It might be navigating through an environment, but they have to stop at a particular place to get a reward uh it could be we don't do this but it could be something like learning to lever press for a reward or go left or go right for a reward some kind of task like that uh, that they can't just do right off the bat they have to learn something and we record the neural activity throughout that learning period and then we just let them go to sleep afterwards which is as simple as putting them in a comfortable little area and letting them hang out and the whole time we're recording the neural activity so then, we're look we're looking to see if these patterns are replayed during the sleep after the learning event, as we suspect. Hmm. So you've implanted
1: these electrodes, and they're just
0: scanning the brain basically the entire time. Yeah, there's just a continuous scanning of the brain during the learning and during the sleep afterwards. Could you tell us a
1: little little bit about the apparatus behind all of that stuff? Like, how are you guys able to surgically implant the electrodes? And uh, could you tell me about the stuff that does all of that monitoring?
0: Yeah. So, the equipment is pretty sophisticated. Uh, and I had – this is one of the coolest things about graduate school is I had no idea really what any of this stuff was when I started. Yeah, I got the idea like, okay, neurons are – elect they communicate electrically and you could record that somehow. I've, you know, heard things and like pop pop science about it. Uh, but I didn't really think about how it works. Um, but it works very much the same way as audio equipment does. So, uh, the electrodes are just monitoring the electrical state and then, but the electrical signals are very small inside the brain. And what's happening is those electrical signals are being conducted up the wires that are in the brain. Those are the electrodes. They're amplified just by like a speaker amplifier, essentially they're miniaturized so that the animal can carry it around. Uh, And then that signal is amplified at that stage, sent all the way back to a a computer system that's logging the data at a continuous rate. And then afterwards we can go back in and look to see which neuron is firing when, what the whole brain state is like, uh, and a whole bunch of other things. And as far as implanting the electrodes goes, Um, that's a cool, that's a cool thing to do too. That's one of my favorite parts of the job, uh, being able to do surgery is, uh, it's a skill and it doesn't come easily. So you really have to take time and you you have to think very carefully before you start and plan everything out ahead of time. Everything needs to be extremely sterile. Um, but honestly, that's one of my favorite parts of the job is kind of thinking about all of the things that I need to do to prepare for that. You need to have all your tools in place. Uh, everything needs to be, the electrodes have to be prepared in a particular way. And that requires a lot of time and effort. Um, you know, your rats have to be very comfortable with you so that when you put them under anesthesia and everything, they're okay. Uh, you have to have drugs ready to, uh, reduce the physical pain as much as possible and then reduce risk of infection and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff you have to consider there. It's, there's a very steep learning curve to it, but once you have it, it's it's really fun. And even the le- I mean, the learning process is fun for me. I mean, if you're freaked out by like gory stuff, <laughs> that's probably not fun. But I like to get in there and, and get my hands messy, and that's uh, – is great. And you have to be so concentrated the whole time, and that's something that I really love. When you're in it, you need to be completely focused on it, and you can't be distracted by anything else.
1: Well, it would be bad for the rat,
0: I guess, suppose. That would be very bad for the rat and uh, very bad for your experiment and very bad for your funding agencies. Uh, so, yeah, you really you do have to be focused for everybody's best interest.
1: So, you mentioned you study both rats and mice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what's the difference, aside from them being different species, do right. you see any differences and
0: why do you study both? So, they each have uh, pros and cons. Mice, in general are a little bit um, less able to do these complicated uh, cognitive tasks. So in that sense, they are inferior to rats that can do some more complicated behavioral stuff. Um, uh, mice in terms of size, that's a that's a big difference and they're going to have different applications because of their size. Mice. The mice we use in our lab are like one tenth of the size of a rat. So a mouse would easily fit inside the palm of your hand. They're like maybe 30 grams Uh, and a rat. Yeah. They're, they're pretty tiny, but a rat is going to be like 10 times that size. So it's going to be like 300, 400 grams. Uh, It's going to be much bigger than the palm of your hand, even if you have a big hand. Um, But you know, they're both fun. Rats are really, they're cool. It's fun to hang out with them and you can like tickle them and stuff and they get to know you and your friends for a while and, that's cool too. And they love they love treats. Chocolate, they love chocolate, they love fruit loops. That's really cool. Uh giving them fruit loops, they get really excited when you come around if you're the person that gives them fruit loops. Um but in terms of the experimental application, uh you can do what we call freely moving recordings in rats where you can take these electrodes and once they're all put together the whole and the amplifiers are attached to it. It's a fairly heavy piece of equipment that could be 20, 30 grams. A rat can carry that around on its head pretty well, uh, especially after a couple of days of habituating to it. It's like there's nothing even there. So they can just run around carrying this stuff on their head and it's not a problem. So we can have them moving in the real world and doing all kinds of tasks in the real world navigation tasks, navigating through actual space. Mice, because they're so much smaller. We can't do those same, same kinds of things. So in many cases, and in our lab, people will do what's called head fixing them, which is essentially you just put them into this apparatus that keeps their head still, but they can move their body around and we'll put them on like a track ball uh, or a running wheel so they can move the wheel which makes them feel a little bit more comfortable. But then also the wheel is synced synced up with like a virtual reality environment. And then they can move through virtual space, which I'm assuming from their perspective and the way they behave, they're probably really confused by when you first put them on there because they're just running around that doesn't really seem like they're paying attention to anything, Uh, they're still getting used to everything. But eventually, based on their behavior, you can infer that they really do have some understanding of the virtual space they will stop at particular locations when they know that they have to, to get a reward. Um, and even if you shift the, the gain, so you make the ball move slower or faster, they'll still respond at the same places, which means that they're not just counting how far they've gone. They're not just timing it in their head or counting the number of steps. If you're varying the speed at which the ball moves, they're using the visual information from the virtual reality to figure out where they have to, you know, lever press or lick or whatever to get a reward. So, I mean, I was kind of talking smack on mice earlier. They're not as cognitively sophisticated as rats, which I still think is true, but they can still do quite a bit. It's remarkable what these animals can learn, actually. It's pretty amazing. Having tried VR myself in like a video game sort of application, Mm, it's
1: remarkable how quickly you can lose yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing. I haven't played that much VR, but there is another lab in our department that's using VR. Uh, in humans, uh, and I went up there to go test out one of their games that they developed, and yeah, it's immersive. It's it really is. Yeah, you get lost, and there's plenty of videos on Reddit or
1: something like that of people putting it on, and all of a sudden they just have no sense of the the physical space that they're occupying occupying anymore. Right, they'll just fall over. They'll just get scared of stuff. They just don't even think about taking the thing off. They just they just completely lose themselves. Huh. Yeah. It's interesting that mice will, they're cognitively complex enough that they'll also get lost and then they can adjust.
0: Yeah, they can adjust over time. Yeah, it's amazing. It'd be interesting to compare the rate at which they do it compared to humans, right? You have them run uh, an analogous task, or I mean, pretty much the same task, just scaled up for a mouse or a human and see how fast they start responding to like the different space. Right, and see if you can get like a relationship between cognitive complexity i suppose yeah yeah in in one realm at least in terms of like adapting to virtual reality that'd be cool i'm not gonna do it but somebody else should (laughs) one of these days maybe (laughs) so going
1: back to something you mentioned about how you plant these electrodes in their heads and you're measuring the electrical signal in their brains you're continuously measuring that and how much data do you generate and how do you manage all that
0: so the data does get pretty big um, because we sample. It depends on what kind of recording we're doing, but we sample at 30 kilohertz, which means every, uh, every second we have 30,000 individual data points. Um, so you can imagine if we do a recording for a few hours, that gets pretty, pretty big. Uh, if we do that uh, in a recording where we have... Two hundred and fifty-six electrodes, which the last recording I did had that had that number of electrodes at that sampling frequency. Uh, we ended up getting, I think, three hundred or three hundred and fifty gigs of data just within a couple hours, or one rat. Yeah, for one mouse in that case, yeah. Um, and yeah, that's a lot, and that's actually something we're dealing with right now, trying to figure out how to how to manage all this data. There's another thing going on in our lab, which is really cool. I'm not that involved in it, so I won't dive too deep into it. Uh, But we have a method of, a lot of labs have this now, but there's a method of actually imaging the activity of neurons. So if you've ever been in your biology class and your professor or teacher shows you a video of like an animation and they usually show like neurons like lighting up as they're communicating the signals... Uh, We can literally do that now, yeah, where you can see the neuron light up as it fires an action potential, more or less, and that's amazing. But those images, the movies that are created, those are huge files.
1: Like I I can imagine. Right, because they have
0: to be very high resolution, and image files in general tend to get really big if you record for a long time. That starts to amplify and get enormous very quickly. So we're trying to deal with that. We have a couple servers right now, a few terabytes of space, like, I don't know, maybe 50 terabytes of space just on our own hard drives. But eventually we might have to move to some kind of food cloud storage system or something like that. That's kind of an interesting challenge that before I started graduate school, I never would have even thought about.
1: I wonder if there's some sort of unique Compression scheme that you can use specifically because it's this sort of data. Uh, something interesting to think about.
0: Yeah, that would be. Um, it is my, a pretty this good idea. is my
1: sort of jam. So.
0: Would you uh, say this is
1: my sort of jam? So now oh, you yeah. got my wheels turning. Yeah. So to uh, speak, huh?
0: Yeah, interesting. That would be cool. Maybe we should. Uh, maybe we should figure it out together. Oh
1: yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> so going back again. So you said a lot of interesting things. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can only ask so many questions <laughs> at a time. One, in fact. So. You you give them like chocolate and Froot Loops and stuff like that?
0: Yeah. So in order to motivate them to move through the environment, whether virtual or real, you need to give them some kind of uh, motivation. So we usually have some kind of reward like that. Sweetened condensed milk works really well. We use that for the mice running in VR. They seem to respond pretty well to that. As I said before, the rats, they'll run for chocolate sprinkles. Froot Loops, you can get them to go back and forth in a maze and explore the whole thing just by throwing some Fruit Loops out there. And I think they have a pretty good time doing it. It seems like it at least.
1: Hmm. So I remember reading something some time ago. The idea is that the better you take care of your animals, the better data that you get at the end of the day. So I wonder, do you feel like you're in a better position to give them like stuff that they like and take care of them and tickle them and stuff like that because they like it? Is that sort of in your regular routine to take care of them like that? And how is that that compared to other
0: labs that may work with rodents? So, I think that's generally the standard. Everybody wants to have animal models um, that fairly accurately represent whatever system they're trying to study in humans. Um, And for the most part, we don't want to know what's happening to humans under really stressful Conditions. There are a few labs who study stress specifically, and they will intentionally uh, induce some kind of stress in their animals. But for most labs like ours, we just are wanting to understand uh, how animals learn this particular task. So it's best if they're not in a a stressed-out condition. If you put the the rat in there and you've like never touched a rat before, he's going to be pretty freaked out the first time you touch him. Once you put him in the maze, he's probably just going to sit still. He's not going to do anything that you want him to do because he's scared. He's frightened. Um, so it's always in our best interest to spend a lot of time with them and hang out and make sure they're comfortable. And like, I, I have a good time doing it. It's really fun. And now I have a lot of undergraduates doing that for me because it does take up a fair amount of time. And I think they have fun with it. Yeah, it's a good experience just in general to familiarize yourself with the, the animals.
1: Yeah, the paper I was reading, I was referring to was uh, they tried to empirically go about and figuring out how the optimal tickling strategy for rats. Yeah. Like how tickled they like being, because if you over-tickle them, obviously, you're like, okay, stop, you know, stop, no bite you. <laughs> yeah, trip. nobody likes being tickled too much. <laughs> yeah, and that was kind of, there was, that was getting at, oh, interesting. So, how did you get into this
0: line of work? So, initially, I got into neuroscience because... It was pretty it was pretty it wasn't like an amazing moment in terms of the scale or magnitude but it was very distinct. I have a very distinct memory of when I got interested in neuroscience in general. It was my first semester of college as an undergraduate. I was sitting in an introductory psychology lecture. We were going over some of the fundamental concepts of the nervous system. And I remember going into class being really tired, and I was sitting in the front row, I was kind of falling asleep a little bit, as I tend to do in lecture, not a good habit of mine. Um, But we started talking about the nervous system, and then I started to get really interested. And I was wide awake for the rest of the class, ultra-focused on the professor giving us this information. And I just started to think, if you could, if there was some way to monitor the activity of all the neurons in the entire nervous system all at once you could there must be a way that you could decode all of that activity and be able to predict whatever the organism is doing doesn't matter if it's a human being a monkey a cat a rat whatever an ant doesn't matter if you could monitor all the activity there must be a way to predict how it's going to behave because we don't have any behaviors that are not controlled by our nervous system at some level. Uh, So I just, I thought that was a remarkable fact. And ever since then, I haven't really looked back. As soon as we had that lecture, uh, I decided to sign up for a neuroscience or neuropsychology course the next semester. I met my eventual undergraduate mentor. I worked in his lab uh, where we also studied memory, not sleep, but just memory. Uh, and how memories can be changed over time, especially when they're recalled, they can become more sensitive and get updated and changed. And, uh, so yeah, I did that for a few years, loved it, uh, decided to go to graduate school, continuing in the theme of uh, neuroscience and memory. And yeah, then I ended up at the neurobiology and behavior department at UC Irvine. So you decided pretty early, this is something you wanted to do. Yeah, I knew fairly early on. I knew I was very interested in neuroscience from, uh, you know, that first semester as an undergraduate. I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to go to graduate school until probably the beginning of my senior year of college. Uh, I was definitely going through a little bit of an existential crisis that summer, third year into fourth year. Uh, And then I came out on the other side like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I want to do this. Uh, and then throughout the interview process and everything, and studying for the GREs, uh, that desire to be a scientist really like solidified, I was reaffirmed. So I make everyone do the, those inter-
1: introductions, right? Like a mini audio CV. Hey, tell tell me your name. Tell me what you do. Tell me why you think it's important. Uh, but. I found it kind of interesting that there was almost this sci-fi bent behind. Oh yeah, kind of why you Definitely. wanted to get into that. So, so could you could you speak to that? Definitely. A little
0: bit? Uh, I mean, I love uh, sci-fi. I I should know more of it. I feel like, uh, but the the stuff I like has been very influential. So one, I'll just uh, I don't know exactly where you want to go with this, but there's whatever you want, wherever we want. Okay, good. There's one uh, video game that I played in college that I think about regularly. It's like um, um, an academic or scholarly touchstone for me. (laughs) Like I guess some uh, literary critics have touchstone books that they always refer back to, like this is a real masterpiece. I'm gonna compare everything to that. I often think about this game as like, yeah, my research is contributing to a reality that would kind of look like this game. What's it called? Uh, It is called Deus Ex. Ooh, um, the first one? Not the first one. I think it's the third one. Third
1: one, uh, uh, Human Revolution, right?
0: Human. I think it was called Human Revolution. Right. Yeah. Right. They, they made a second and third one, and it was garbage.
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. I know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. And the, the whole idea in that game is um, you have all of these uh, modifications that you can make to your body. Uh, Sometimes they're more of like an exoskeleton type thing. Actually, it's usually not an exoskeleton. It's like integrated in your own body. So a lot of it is like weaponry and stuff like that. That's not exactly what I have in mind. It's a (laughs) video game. But but it is inspiration in some sense. A lot of them are uh, like cognitive enhancements. You can speed things up and just process scenes faster. Uh, You play as uh, some kind of like military... Uh, personnel. Yeah, I don't know exactly um, what your your so character
1: is. I remember, I was playing the sequel to that uh-huh. very recently because okay. I graduated and I had not not much else to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's so, nice to be able to play video oh, games. So, oh, oh, I yeah. miss that so much. I've oh been wanting God. to
0: play Skyrim so badly, <laughs> and I just haven't for like months. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <sighs> Living the dream, I guess. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take. It. Anyway, yeah. So um, for the less cultured of the audience among us <laughs> i say that endearingly um so it's about how the story goes you are a security you run security for this big biotech right. firm you're head of security right and these guys do all sorts of stuff like so if you lose a limb you can get now have a robot arm to replace that limb it has like perfect functionality they figured out all that stuff to connect it to your neurons in your brain so you can feel with those hands they're like perfectly new hands, but except the robot hands. And um, and now there's this. It's gotten advanced to the point that in this universe that people will willingly cut off their own limbs to get these new robot limbs because they'll they'll function much better. There'll be superior people, and then now it becomes this thing where you have a, you know, that racism thing, except it's now um
0: right. It's, it's against uh, cyborg yeah, types, right. modified yeah. types. Versus natural people.
1: Yeah, and then the question goes, can you compete against something like that? Can you compete against someone who can afford implants to make, you know, have their IQ jump by a significant margin?
0: Right. And then there's this uh, class element to the entire thing. Yeah. Uh, There are an entire segment of the population cannot afford these modifications and they're living like, you know, back in the whatever yeah, 20th century yeah and uh, even worse the people um that had to get these
1: modifications due to injury or disability or something like that can't afford the drugs to have the body not utterly reject these modifications it's a it's a it's a thing
0: right and but, wasn't there also I, I think it's at the end of that game there's also this concern about everything being connected and uh your modifications being able to be remotely manipulated yeah, do you, by, you truly own yours? Yeah. Right, yeah. You do you truly? Yeah, it's integrated into your body, but you don't have complete autonomy over it. Uh, somebody else has a little bit of control. I think they do that at the end of it. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. It, uh, they do that at the end of game. the game. It's an old game, but yes. But it yeah, is that, so yeah.
0: Th- that was an influence for sure. I always think about that. Um, I'd like to be able to develop those things for people who do lose a limb or uh, an organ. It'd be able to, it would be so cool to uh, replace that um, with uh, an artificial one that works just as well. Um, another thing that I often think about is, or another uh, piece of media that I often think about is um, uh, Ex Machina, which is a movie. I think that's the title of it. Yeah.
1: That uh, one
0: I'm not familiar with. Yeah. And um, that's that's a great movie. Uh, it's got Oscar Isaacson in it. He plays like this uh, genius programmer who creates an artificial intelligence and embodies it in a machine, but it looks very human-like. And yeah, yeah no, I know, what's he, not. Yeah, yeah, I I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I think it's called X Machina. Yeah, he you're invites right. fairly recent, right? Yeah, yeah. I was kind of throwing myself off there because I was like, Deus X is the game, and then <laughs> X Machina. There's I a theme here. Right here yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, that's another thing. He invites this programmer out who supposedly wins a competition for being the best programmer. And then he goes to get to meet Oscar Isaacson's character in this remote location where only he lives. And really it turns out to be uh, a test for this guy. If he really does believe that this person or machine is a person or a machine. So it ends up being like a Turing test type thing, which is, you know, if you have a conversation with this uh, bot or machine and you don't, have any information about whether it is a human or not except the conversation um, can you determine which one it is if you think it's a human but it's really a machine it passes the turing test that's like the whole idea behind the movie uh, so it asks like a lot of interesting philosophical questions about what it means to be human yeah. what it means to be machine uh, how you draw the boundaries between the two uh, what kind of rights machines have Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that, especially now. Uh, People are starting to be really aware of that. Black Mirror has some pretty cool episodes that deal pretty directly with that. There's a classic uh, science fiction book, uh, iRobot, Isaac Asimov. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a movie made about it, too, with Will Smith. That's pretty newer, uh, pretty more recent. Um, that's, That's a pretty cool movie. It's kind of just like a goofy action flick, but it's got some interesting themes in there and um, there's a really good book that I want to recommend that I think about that that is directly related to this it's called The Most Human Human it's by a guy named Brian Christian and he goes and tries to compete in the Turing test not as a person programming uh, a bot to uh, pass the Turing test but as a human uh, confederate, because uh, the judges, they have uh, chat conversations, like online chat conversations with either bots or actual humans. And the whole idea is to to rate them. And then whoever gets the highest rating, like whoever, whichever bot gets the most human ratings, they win the Turing test. Actually, I think they have to pass a certain percentage to win the Turing test. Uh, and so far... Maybe it's been done once, maybe it's been done twice, something like that. I don't know. Whatever the percentage is, they've crossed that threshold. But anyway, his objective was to be the most human human because you have a bunch of human people behind these computers too, along with the bots, and sometimes they get rated as robots. And And so he starts asking all these questions about if you're just looking at conversations alone, how do you demonstrate that you are a human and not just a machine? Ah, yes, the what, reverse what differ- during test. Yeah. What, yeah, exactly. What differentiates us if uh, a machine can respond as naturally and uh, normally as a machine can. Uh, so that's really great. He also, he's a brilliant writer. I think he has a master's in poetry along with uh, maybe some kind of degree in engineering or physics or something. So he just writes about this in a really beautiful way. That's something I think about a lot too. I've read that book a couple of times. Highly recommend it. Very cool.
1: With what you mentioned about memory, how does memory specifically fit into this vision that you have for the future?
0: So, when I talk about memory, a lot of people, like the common interpretation is to think of um, your, I guess, what we would call episodic memory which is uh, something like what did you have for breakfast yesterday uh, because you have to think of uh, you know a very specific time and the content of the memory itself, which is the eating the breakfast. And you have to know when that happened uh, with respect to other things. You don't want to remember if somebody asks you that, you don't want to remember what you had two days ago and you don't remember what you want to have this morning, What you what you had this morning. You want to remember what you had yesterday. So there's like a sequential component to it. Um, so that's what we would call episodic memory. Um, and a lot of those, a good example would be like a birthday party. If you remember uh, your 20th birthday party where you went out with your friends and you had a party and it was fun and then you went to somebody's house afterward and had an after party and I don't know, had a good time. And you remember all the content of that. That's the episodic memory. But when I say memory, um, I also mean episodic memory, but I mean more memory beyond just that, uh, which we would call semantic memory, which is our knowledge for just how the world works in general. Our memory, for instance, for what a table is, is semantic memory, right? You can close your eyes and imagine what a table is. Uh, if you were had no experience with tables before, you wouldn't know. So that is a form of memory. I feel like it's not what comes to people's mind to begin with, but just our general knowledge of the world. It's all an accumulation of all these experiences that we've ever had. So even things like uh, basic perception, right? Like knowing what a table is or knowing what shutters in a window are, uh, that's all a form of memory. Because if you go back to when you were a kid, three years old, you don't know what that is. You might break it up into like little subcomponents, like, okay, yeah, I can see lines here and there, but the way they all go together doesn't really mean anything to me. It's only once you've seen it many, many times and people tell you, yeah, those things are called shutters, that you start to learn and remember. Oh, yeah, those are that's what shutters are. So all this stuff, all the stuff we kind of take for granted granted as just basic perception, that is all memory. Uh, And so I think this has really interesting applications for like building artificial intelligence. Uh, The human brain and a lot of other organisms' brains are very good at extracting these commonalities between all of our experiences at just linking things together and remembering those linkages. Um, And computers aren't really that good at it yet. They're very good at doing it in one specific domain, right? We have great uh, speech recognition and even production, uh algorithms right if you talk to your google assistant or your uh siri is that what they call it on iphone yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i feel like i'm the only person who doesn't know that Um, everybody everybody's got the iphone except me um that is uh so they're very good at doing it in a specific domain right so that would be like the speech domain but if you take the algorithm that siri or your google assistant is using and you feed it some image data uh it doesn't it doesn't know what to do with that because it's only been trained on speech but the human brain has this, these great mechanisms of generalizing things across all of our different senses it doesn't matter where it, whether it's an image or a speech uh or some smell it can link all these things together computers are can't quite do that you know they have great they can have great sensory systems we have cameras that could see better than a human. Uh, So in that sense, they can resolve a lot more than we can, but they're not very good at linking it to all of these other experiences and all this other information. Um, So that's what I say. Well, that's what I mean when I say I study memory. I want to understand how all of that is generated, how we generate this semantic knowledge, this knowledge of the world and how it works and all the stuff in it. It's very incredible that you have this, um,
1: I guess, very high-level aspirations about what you want to study and what you, and now you're here doing it. Well, that's very nice. But I have to wonder, though, like, um, I guess for the sake of the lab, hmm. is that, like, what the lab is about? Because there's, like, that practical aspect of I have to publish a paper right. if I need to graduate and stuff like that, right? Um, and I have to wonder, is there any sort of disconnect between – the immediate practical needs of what you guys put down in your grant versus what you would like to do. And um if there are, how do you like how do you deal with that?
0: So we do have some grants right now that pretty much that's the premise behind it. We want to understand how the brain is extracting this semantic knowledge that's spectacular. And making sense of the world, which is pretty cool. But to operationalize this stuff to actually make it Something you can study in a laboratory has got to be more concrete than all the stuff that I was just talking about. You have to put a rat or a mouse in a box or a virtual reality. It's a little bit, you know, we can't just have a mouse live its entire life and record all the neural signals and then try to make sense of it after a year of collecting data or something like that. That's a cool idea, but. We have to be a little bit more practical than that. How would you even sort through all that? I don't. Yeah. yeah, that would be that would be a huge challenge. And I mean, that's something that people are trying to do now. Just continuously collect this data and try to make sense of it later. That's why I like data scientists this is such a hot job now because that's what uh, a lot of corporations do, right? Credit card companies just collect data on where you're buying stuff how much you're spending, what time of the month you're spending it, uh, all this personal information about how old you are. And they're trying to find all these patterns in the data. It's pretty cool, honestly. And it would be pretty cool to do it with the neural data that we collect. Um, But yeah, we have to be a little bit more targeted than that. So we have to go into a lot finer grain detail than just saying like, yeah, I want to understand how all these things are linked together. Um, so when we put it into the lab, um, it does get very specific. So for instance, one, the one experiment that I have going on right now is these mice running in virtual reality. We record the electrical signals while they're running through the virtual reality environment. Then they go to sleep afterwards and we record the sleep. We're what we're looking for there is when they're going in this virtual reality environment, uh, we get because they're like repeating the same, they're actually running laps on a virtual track. And so depending on what brain area we're recording from, when they're running these laps, these patterns emerge because it's a stereotyped uh, behavior. So the same neurons are gonna be activated at the same part of the maze. Uh, and then what we see in sleep afterwards is that these same patterns, they re-emerge during sleep. And then this is where things get very specific. Uh, So we have a a specific idea about what parts of the brain are in charge of making these replay events in sleep happen. And that's the main objective of my PhD thesis. What is the DVD player? What's actually forcing or causing the playback of the memories while we sleep? Um, So, yeah, we have to go from the really grandiose ideas down to something that's more manageable that we can actually study in the laboratory. And so, that's what I'm working on right now. How's the brain generating these replay events?
1: And that is how science has to go, right? We have yeah, these great ideas. Yeah, but it does have to go down real deep and real fine, like particular. Uh, but kind of what I feel like is remarkable, like just hearing you talk about it, is that there seems to be a lot of alignment between the fine-grained, nitty-gritty experiments that you run and sort of the bigger picture. That you're trying to look for it seems to be a lot of alignment there like it's um it actually does feel like it perhaps is serving that I, I, I think that it's interesting because I wonder I know for me it was lost for me for in a lot of ways mm-hmm. Um, that kind of uh, alignment yeah. I suppose what do you I guess could you speak to why you might think that is or like what do you do in your day to day to kind of I suppose keep that alive and have it be so aligned?
0: So I think there were times during graduate school where I definitely felt like what I was doing was not contributing to those grander ideas that we had and that were proposed in our grants and things like that. Um, I feel like that kind of comes in waves sometimes, uh, especially when uh, things aren't going very well and you have failures in your uh, experiments and uh, technical equipment failures, things like that. It's a lot easier to get bogged down by that stuff and get frustrated and start thinking, yeah, is this stuff even really contributing to the stuff that I'm really interested in? Do these experiments really mean anything? Um, I have the benefit right now in graduate school of having a very engaged lab. Uh, So a couple of my other lab members, my colleagues, they love talking about these bigger ideas Uh, I mean, sometimes to the point where we need to cut ourselves off and get back to work because we're getting distracted and you do have to be practical at the end of the day. Um, But I think you also have to think in these grander terms at the end of the day too. You just have to balance it. Uh, But that's always good. That's always very motivating. It reminds me of why I really like this stuff. And even when things aren't working out or I have to do some boring menial task. It's good to be reminded of why I'm doing it to begin with. So that's one thing. We have this great lab where we can all talk to each other about these ideas. And another thing is uh, my advisor tends to think in these really big terms. Uh, He's like a big picture guy. Uh, He's like pretty famous within our field. Uh, And that's kind of interesting. And I think he's very famous, especially at this point in his career, because he has these really big ideas. And I think some of those ideas have really pushed the field forward. Um, And because of that, and because I'm familiar with uh, all the stuff that he's written for the most part, um, that's influenced the way that I think about these things. So I have this tendency to think about things in really big picture terms. Mm, Certainly. It seems like the
1: environment is fostering of that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think if I was working in a lab where people were more concentrated on just the nitty gritty, I'd maybe be more of a technical expert than I am, um, but I probably wouldn't be thinking in such grand terms. Uh, And I think personally, I think I'd burn out in that kind of environment. Um, Sure, it'd be nice to be a technical technical expert. Experiments might go a little bit smoother uh, because I'm more concentrated on the details, but I think they would be less meaningful to me personally if I didn't always have this bigger picture in mind.
1: But kind of, the infuriating thing about brains is that when you could use that reminder, when you, that bigger picture can be held to your heart, and that having that there would be most beneficial is when we're also in the deepest of pits, right? yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just kind of right. Um, it's 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 silly, right? Um, it's yeah. It's really ironic the way it works. <laughs> yeah, and I, but I, but I suppose that does kind of. Tell you that, you know, our, we really do create our own reality. Yeah. Left brain, being what it is, is literally incapable of anything else. Yeah. Right. And um.
0: Yeah, it's all it's all interpreting what's going on around it, um, and yeah, like you said, in some ways that can be really infuriating because it's it's hard to take a step back and reflect on things. Reflection is really important, just like self reflection. I think it's easy to miss that. Um, I don't remember what I was gonna say.
1: Well, if it comes back, we can
0: <laughs> circle it back in. I
1: felt like it was a good idea, then I don't remember it. When you were looking to get into grad school, was this a lab you wanted to get into, or was it more like, hey, a guy here,
0: or can I fit in? That kind of deal. So I ended up at UCI because my undergraduate mentor, who I was pretty close with, recommended Uh, UCI in general as a good uh, neuroscience program and one professor in particular because he felt like he was at the cutting edge of his research. Um, He's a good person. He'll be a good advisor to you. So when I initially moved out here, I thought I was going to work in uh, that professor's lab. And I rotated in the lab, which means I spent 10 weeks there just sort of volunteering, helping out on a couple of people's experiments. I had a small experiment independently on my own, but I was using all his lab equipment for it and everything. And it was nice. It was a good experience, but it was a very molecular biology based. So that means I spent a lot of time pipetting solutions into one another, um, running uh, gel electrophoresis, is, which is how you uh, identify um, the molecular weight, the relative molecular weights of things. So you can differentiate like which proteins are expressed or which uh, other molecules are expressed in the cells that you're looking at. It's all very interesting stuff conceptually, but procedurally in terms of the stuff that I actually had to do day-to-day activities in the lab, it sucked. It was really boring. It's nice if you like to pop your headphones in and just listen to music and and kind of go through the rote activities of pipetting all this stuff together and preparing your gels and doing all that kinds of stuff. But, uh, and again, conceptually it was very interesting and a lab was great. I really liked all the people in it. Um, but I just didn't like the work. So then, uh, I ended up working in a different lab for a little while. So our first year in our program, we have these rotations where you go through 10 weeks And the idea is you kind of sample a couple different labs and at the end you pick your favorite one and the one that works out. It's it's a two-way street. They need to want you and you need to want them. Usually it works out pretty fine. Um, So I did the second rotation in the lab that I ended up staying in and I really liked the bigger picture questions they were asking. And then I also really liked the day-to-day work, the implanting, doing surgeries to implant the electrodes. Uh, hanging out with rats, playing around with them. Um, I love, more than anything else, I love recording from the brain. Uh, When you do the types of recordings that we do, you can actually feed the signals through an audio amplifier and play them out through a speaker. And you can hear when uh, a neuron sends its signal, when it fires. Uh, And I love that. I still love that. Five years into graduate school. It is like music to my ears when I hear that. That's like the most motivating thing I can possibly hear. I've heard it hundreds of times, many, many days. And I still, every time I hear it, I get excited. Uh, So that kind of motivation and reaffirmation that I really love what I do. And that happens on like a weekly basis, daily basis sometimes. um, That keeps me going. I really like that. And that's what made me join this lab. So, it's kind of funny. Initially, I didn't even know who this guy who I work for now is. I didn't know what his laboratory does. Uh, I was totally unfamiliar with it. And then just through, I guess, a little bit of serendipity, uh, I ended up where I am and I love it. Makes
1: me think, um, listening to those electrical signals, uh, is it Kind of like a Geiger counter in the sense when it like something happens, it just makes a click or a sound or something like that. Or is there some sort of I guess um, the difference in the pitch
0: that's being played or something like that? So it depends on what sounds we're listening to. If we want to listen to individual cells, individual neurons fire, then yeah, then it's just like a pop. Uh, when it fires a lot, very fast, it sounds like popcorn popping almost um it's just it's great it's a great sound so those are individual cells firing their signals we can also look for things that are happening more globally so what you know uh, hundreds of neurons are doing at once and depending on what signal those are giving out they'll make different sounds so there's one thing that i'm really interested in which is called a sharp wave ripple and it's basically when you have a group of uh, probably a few thousand neurons and they all fire in very quick succession with each other. And these are events where we think, well, actually we know that these memories are being replayed. So on a global scale, it's called a sharp wave ripple. And then within that, we know that these specific sequences of cells are firing, and that's reflective of a, some event that happened earlier in the day that the animal's replaying while it sleeps. And these sharp wave ripples, when you listen to them, it sounds like um, ripping off Velcro. Uh, so it's another, it's another cool signal that we can listen to. And it's another thing that when I hear it, it's really exciting. I love that sound. And, it, and uh, another thing is I love showing my undergraduates this because I think it's very, um, for some of them, it's very fascinating to be able to see what the data looks like or what it sounds like in this case in real time. Rather than having to pipette solutions together and, and wait for something else, or just see the result pop up on a computer screen, uh, I think this is really fascinating, and just because it's so immediate, I love that. Um, and it's funny once you listen to the sounds for a really long time, uh, your ear gets trained to it. It's like you know, listening to music. If you're a real expert in a particular genre of music, you're going to hear things that other people who are not familiar with the music, they're not picking up on. And so sometimes I'll be hearing something and I'll say, okay, that's a, that's a ripple or that's some cell firing. You can actually tell the difference between different subtypes of neurons based on how they sound. Uh, and some of my students who aren't as experienced, they'll look at me like, what? Like, how, how do you know this stuff? Uh, and that's kind of cool. Because it reaffirms the fact that I have become at least a little bit of an expert. I mean, there's a there's just a certain amount of time that you have to dedicate to it in order to start picking up on these things. And when that happens, I always realize, yeah, I put in that time. Now I can start to just hear these things. Um, and that's cool. And I like pointing them out to other people. Teaching is a big part of graduate school. And at first, I didn't like it that much, but... Lately, especially, have actually been really liking it. So I'm really curious about it, because
1: I feel like it would make for a really good PhD art project. Yeah. To, I guess, put sounds to different things, um, tr- to introduce a level of musicality to it. I wonder if there's some way to shove in like neurons doing this or that associated with certain harmonics because in in a physical sense that it makes sense to do that something yeah. like that. I wonder wonder if that's something that could be done.
0: Just they're just curious. Hmm. Yeah, that would be kind of interesting. Uh there's a lot of different uh you know, some listeners might have heard of different like brain rhythms um which just has to do with cells firing at regular intervals, usually on like a big scale so many cells fire. Uh at a particular interval, uh, and they can be really fast. Sometimes they're uh, at like uh, 20, 30, 40 hertz, so that many times a second. Sometimes they're slower, maybe once every two seconds. A bunch of fire, cells will fire all at once. That would be a, a slower rhythm. Uh, and there, I think there is a lot of opportunity for musicality there. But one thing that's really cool in a lot of the presentations that use uh, people who do this research when they present. They often put uh, like a movie of the animal performing the behavior and then sync it up with the audio of the spikes firing. And I think that's always very compelling when you're sitting in the audience and you're watching uh, a mouse or a rat run through a maze or press some lever or something. And at just one particular point, but every time a cell fires something like that. So you could be recording from one of the reward regions in the brain, and every time he licks to lick up a little bit of sweetened condensed milk or something, that cell's going to spike a bunch. And then it's going to be quiet for the rest of the time, and then when he goes back to the lick spout and licks it, it's going to fire again. And it just becomes, in those cases, it just becomes so evidently clear what the neuron is doing that you don't have to be an expert to pick up on it. And those are always the best results just when they're they pass the bloody test as we say you just you don't have to do any statistics on it you can just look at it and say like yeah okay that's what the neuron is doing or like yeah the difference between this group and that group is is definitely it's bigger it's bigger by a long shot this is going to be a way out there kind of thought yeah um but it's
1: interesting kind of the the empathic power of neurons that It's a bunch of neurons looking at another bunch of neurons, but it's hearing it. I guess in that sense, it doesn't really matter if you're looking at it or hearing it. It's getting that input and it kind of understands it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, that's, it's kind
0: of interesting that brains do that. Um, What do you mean? Like that we, that we're just a bunch of neurons. Yeah. And we're observing another bunch bunch of of neurons. Yeah. And
1: then somehow we kind of relate those
0: behaviors
1: to that bundle of neurons. Yeah. And we can just kind of intuitively get a sense of what it's doing without looking at charts or graphs.
0: Right. Yeah. All you have to do is uh, just kind of, uh, yeah, just watch. Actually, there's a guy who won the Nobel Prize um, in 2014. Uh, His name is John O'Keefe. He won it with two other people. Uh, And he made the initial discovery back in 1971. He was recording from a brain region called the hippocampus, which is something that we record from too. Uh, and he was recording single neurons in that region. And he was just listening to the cells fire as an animal a rat was just sort of randomly foraging around a box, I think. And he noticed that there's some cells that seem to fire in very specific places in the box. And again, that was like passing the bloody test. That wasn't the design of the experiment. He didn't think that neurons in the hippocampus were... Uh, going to respond at just particular spots like in one particular corner just the middle Um, it was just by sitting there watching and listening to the rat uh, that he made this observation like oh okay i think maybe this is what these cells are doing and now a few decades later we have a lot of evidence that that is what they're doing they're kind of encoding where the animal is in space if you blow out the hippocampus, if you somehow get rid of that, and there are some human patients who've had damage to the hippocampus, we know that their spatial perception, their ability to navigate in space, that's all impaired. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's that kind of stuff that just like really gets me going. You can just sit there and make an observation and that completely changes the game potentially. This is very compelling in my opinion. That's a damn cool field. goddamn. So I, hmm. so
1: it's going to get held that. Who developed that? I guess what group developed that system of attributing sounds to neuron's firing? How do they figure out like okay, we should play sounds like this or that and how do they determine all that? How that do you have um, cuz that's, that's a very significant thing to do.
0: Yeah, so I actually don't know who the first person would be to record uh to play it through a speaker and listen to it but it's kind of intuitive if you know anything about um electronics and you know how neurons communicate electrically um so if you know those two things you know you can take this electrical signal that's being passed by the neuron and feed it into your your electronics to amplify it and play it through a speaker. Um, so I I don't know who the first person to do that was. That's, that's kind of a cool question. Because
1: certainly it wouldn't seem like a stretch at all that some signals engineer would come along and be like, these are just signals. I'm just going to play them.
0: Yeah. You know? I mean, that's one thing I like, really like about the work that we do is, is very, um, interdisciplinary and a lot of science is now. And I think that's really cool because it allows you to be exposed to things that you didn't initially think you'd be interested in. Um, and it allows you to learn about them, but, um, the first people who sort of discovered what the neural signal is called the action potential. That's what I mean when I say spike, uh, the first people to sort of discover it and characterize it completely, uh, there were two guys named, um, Alan Hodgkins and Andrew Huxley. And they recorded from these big squid axons and they characterize how the axon propagates the action potential and what kind of electrical currents are involved and all the kinds of stuff like that. Um, I don't remember what their training was. I think they were physiologists by training. Um, but they have to know about, you know, signals in general and, you know, how to filter and uh, how things work at particular frequencies and stuff like that. Uh, They had to understand all the electronics that they were using to record these signals. They actually, in World War II, worked on um, radar systems. So they were these physiologists working on biology. Then World War II happened. Everybody, uh, they were, uh, I think they were both British. Maybe Alan Hodgkin. No, I'm pretty sure they were both British. Um, Everybody kind of had to pull together, do what they can to support their countries so they went and worked on this radar for the military. Um, and then they went back to being biologists later on. But my point is, they had this interdisciplinary knowledge that's like pretty cool. And I think leads to really uh, creative endeavors when you're trying to combine these two different things together. That's when you can come up with some really interesting and uh, fruitful ideas. And, uh, side note that guy, Andrew Huxley, he's a half brother with Aldous Huxley who wrote Brave New World and Doors of Perception and uh, is a, yeah, sort of an influential, uh, forward-thinking writer. I always I always wonder, I don't know that much about his personal history other than the fact that he's half-brothers with Alice Huxley, but it'd be nice to know like, what kind of conversations they had or, or what their relationship was like because they're half-brothers, so I don't know if they were close or not. Right. Um, but it would kind of be cool to be a fly on the wall and uh, – Listen to one of their conversations. It's certainly suspicious. The interdisciplinary nature of
1: one person and the guy who wrote 1984, who right. thought about the possibility of technologies, and not just that, but also the trajectory of mankind, what, it, what we could be, what our nature is, and the stuff like that. Right. It is certainly suspicious. He's yeah. He's thinking ahead. Yeah. Mad um, respect to that. <laughs> so we got pretty pretty stuck in the the technical weeds. Which, which is did. a lot of fun. We talked a lot about a lot of big picture stuff, um, which is your jam. And I respect because it's also my jam. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to – so, how has thinking about all that stuff, working in the lab that you're in now, do all of those thoughts kind of spill over into your life outside of science, all the day-to-day things that you might do? And in fact, could you even just tell us about what some of those
0: day-to-day things may be that you do? So, they – I guess what I do in science doesn't really uh, spill outside of my life or outside of my, you know, academic life uh, very much. I do a lot of sort of different, like totally different activities outside of my my science. I know a lot of people in my field do, um, they might do uh, some kind of like interesting programming stuff at home. A lot of people are like hobbyists. Electronics hobbyists, they'll build little like quadcopters or whatever, or, like some kind of signal analysis machine or change the tone. of A lot of musicians actually, they'll build like their own little amplifiers and things and like uh, things to distort their guitar or something.
1: Somehow all of this just makes sense. Yeah, right. And right. even you it, it, saying like – It all fits it together. Yeah, and even you saying it doesn't quite spill over into your normal life, but the way you were talking about all the other stuff. I'm like no, I feel like it, <laughs> I feel like it still kind of does, just maybe not in the most
0: obvious sense. It it makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, what I was saying there was um, a lot of people in my field are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not like that. Um, I do th- uh, things stuff that's really unrelated. Um, I like to stay pretty active. I feel like a lot of times I can get. In my own head, it's very hard to get work off of my mind. I know that's something that a lot of people relate to in graduate school and outside of graduate school. It's just there's always stuff that you could be doing, you could be thinking about, but that's not always the best route. Sometimes it's the best option to just take some time off and then come back to it and revisit it with a fresh mind and fresh eyes. So I've started to do that a lot more in graduate school and I find staying active is a very good way to do that. Specifically, I'm a big um, lacrosse player, so our school, UCI, has a team that I'm lucky enough to still be eligible to play for. I'm not too old, and those guys keep me young. I play with a lot of undergraduates, so that's fun, Uh, but that's an example of something that I, when I'm playing or even practicing, I have to be so concentrated on what's happening in the moment and predicting uh, what's going to happen in just a couple seconds that there is no room to think about anything outside of that can't think about other stuff going on in my personal life. Definitely can't think about work. Uh, I mean, you'll just never get anything done on the field if you're distracted by stuff going on at work. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's what I would say the major thing that occupies my time outside of the lab. Uh, I, th- I do think it would be cool to sort of develop uh, prosthetics or mod- body modifications in the sort of Deus Ex thing that we were talking about earlier to enhance our ability to be better athletes. I think it'd be cool to develop some sports in which those things are encouraged. And and that'd then, be amazing. Yeah, to see and that. then have you know, and then have uh, soccer players who can kick the ball like insanely hard, uh, or run up and down the field in like just a few seconds. Uh, or jump incredibly high and stay balanced and do backflip kicks and everything. Like I think that would be fascinating. Develop some new sports. Um, there's a this is a kind of tangential, but one of my favorite video games is uh, Final Fantasy X, and they have this sport in there they call it Blitzball yeah, and they play blitzball. underwater. Uh, wouldn't it be cool if you could play some kind of game underwater and you just had this modification that allowed you to breathe underwater? Right. It's a fantasy game. It's, like, uh, supposed to simulate, like, an
1: hour-long game that happens completely underwater. Right. People obviously can't do that. But, right. you know, fantasy, they get away with it. But, yeah, you're right. Robots could totally do that. Cyborgs yeah. could do that.
0: Yeah. If we had some uh, kind of mechanism to allow us to breathe underwater, that would be such a cool thing to develop. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, I, I can kind of relate the two. Definitely.
1: So, okay. So, here's what I'm getting at. Okay. So, side note first. Interesting thing. the The... Sequel to the New Deus Ex, the Human mm-hmm. Revolutions. Um, it's called Mankind Divided. Uh, I was playing it recently, so it's in my mind. They have, if as you go along through the world of this game, you'll see these posters for what is be- basically MMA for cyborgs. Hmm. And they designed those and put that in game as a bit of a world building thing. Right. That, that yeah, which is pretty cool. But on the so that wasn't the point I was going to make though. Just an interesting side note I wanted to point out. Um, The interesting thing to me here, I think, when you said that, hey, I don't feel like it spills over, Uh, the science to my regular life, I like to do things that are completely different. Um, Somehow, to me, that just seems like the opposite side of the coin of all these people that are doing hobby electronics um, or making all this other weird stuff on the side. It seems to be almost to be uh, kind of the same sort of mechanism at the end of the day. It just expresses itself a little differently. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't – I'm having – Right. Like the people who are doing – I think I think I get what you mean. It's like the people who are doing the uh, hobbyist circuit building uh, and building little machines at home and stuff like that. Like they might be doing that anyway if they weren't neuroscientists. But they decided to become neuroscientists or mechanical engineers or electrical engineers because they like doing that stuff. Yeah. So it's like their life spilling over into their work, right? Right. That's you're right. That may be the better way to put it. It's actually the other way around. Yeah. 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 Huh. That's what that's what I thought you meant when you said it's the other side of the coin. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah. That's direction. I wasn't change. sure what I meant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it sounded appropriate. <laughs> but okay, I like yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think that's a good way of putting it. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, the... cuz I I can relate to that too cuz um I also like doing things that are completely unrelated. But at the end of the day, uh, something to be said about exercising those neurons in particular ways, right? You're not. Maybe it's just that we're not constantly firing the same bundle of things over and over again. Maybe having them fire in different ways lets them relax in some way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think uh, if you just intuitively look at your own behavior and. Maybe I'm overgeneralizing. Maybe it's just me. But in many cases, I have this tendency to try to just continue working through a problem. This happens a lot when I'm doing uh, computer programming. Uh, I run into some problem. I think I just got to stay at it for another hour and I'll get through it. When really, after that hour where I've got nothing done, I'll get up, go for a 10 minute walk, have a cup of coffee or something, go have a conversation with someone totally unrelated, come back, have the answer. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, yeah, there's a truth to that that I think is intuitively true. It's like sometimes uh, maybe it's just me justifying being lazy. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes taking a break is the best way to solve a problem.
1: <laughs> like That's actually a lesson I had to t- learn multiple times before it finally sunk in. And actually when it sunk in, it was when um, I was talking with another professor about uh, this thing. Um, uh, this is an interesting professor, nearly – uh, there was, uh feel like I have a weird interest. It we're like acquaintances, but there's like a weird relationship because um, I nearly failed this professor's class. <laughs> yeah, but that was due to like circumstances around my life. Things were just falling apart and it was not a good yeah. time. Uh, another episode, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, the, as it was going, I wasn't going to pastor class. Right. It wasn't going to happen. Um, but, you know, I did all the stuff that you should be doing. When, like, you know, when I I was in that pit and I said, I'm going to pull myself out. I'm going to, it's going to happen. Don't know how, but it is. Um, And um, the idea was that I will go to the, go to the counselor, talk to them, get all this stuff sorted. Uh, And the deal was you actually go through doing that stuff. We'll have this bit of extra credit that you can do. Um, And then um, we'll see how it goes from there. Mm-hmm. And that's the same as the you're not going to pass. And then, yeah, you know, like aced that extra credit <laughs> exam. Yeah. Um, yeah, pretty sure I got a perfect score on it because I just knew it. What was I getting at? <clears throat> that wasn't the important. Part. Anyway, so <laughs> that wasn't the, I just thought about that. So, um, so I didn't finally learn that lesson until I had this conversation with a professor uh, who related with me about the same thing. Saying in lab, it's like two or three in the morning. And then, just this thing just needs to work. The thing just needs to work, and then it breaks. Oh, and then I broke it because I'm tired. Yeah. And
0: like, yeah, well I've been there yeah, before.
1: Yeah. And it's it definitely is a thing. Like you should go do something else, right? Yeah. And to me, it seems like, yeah, yeah, maybe it really is life spilling into science, doing all this other stuff too, right? That kind of um, sparks that sort of uh, same kind of joy that we get from our work in some ways yeah Um, for me it was yoga my active thing was yoga when I was in grad school gotcha that's when I got certified to teach and everything too oh okay yeah Uh,
0: that was my jam yeah did that like uh, help you get through a a tough time ooh was that something that you relied on oh okay um (laughs) okay
1: I I can go through the story now for sure um I attribute my teacher training, the 200-hour yoga teacher training that you get to be mm-hmm. certified a instructor by a Yoga Alliance. It's called the, which is sort of the governing body here in the states for um, yoga instructors, the, the the biggest one at least. Um, uh, it was out of that training that I was able to pull myself out of a depressive rut. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, yeah what i did how the story goes um my advancement exam was coming up and as a reminder for the audience that's the big exam which is often considered to be the hardest part of grad school that you have to compile all the work that you've done so far plan out a research uh plan for the rest of your phd and then you have to justify every little bit to a committee of five professors. Now, at least it was five in my department. Yeah. Um, then they have to say, this guy, he's doing a good job. We can let him stay. Or they'll say, no, go back to the drawing board, <laughs> you're garbage. And, you know, you can't fail that more than twice. Because then, like, you know, <laughs> bad things happen. But anyway, um, yeah, so, and I would be like, okay, so these advancements are going to come up. I'm just going to go check into the counseling center just to make sure all the gears in my brain are lubricated. You know, all the neurons are going to fire fine and stuff like that. You know, all that kind of stuff. Just, just make sure, like, you know, just get all wrapped up, right? And I'll be fine. Uh, and it was supposed to be like a quick thing. Nine sessions, like nine weeks later, it was like, yeah, these are. The guy says to me, these are classic depressive symptoms, dude. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that explains a lot about my life. A lot about my life. That I that I've been depressed and I thought about it. Then that moment of realization, I thought, "Wow, how long have I been de- depressed?" I actually have no idea. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, and I could attribute that to a lot of things. It's that culture of, uh, I don't know, like uh, being grown up in a Korean household. That you gotta be strong and stuff like that. And um, being a dude in America, you gotta be tough and stuff like that. Tough all this stuff out, you know. Yeah. Um. I attributed to all of those things, and yeah, and I just didn't know. It didn't occur to me until that guy said it, right? Uh, and then, then started the journey. They sent me out to a long-term therapist to go get all those sorted. Yeah, get that sorted. Just you know, I say sorted, but you, you know what I mean. Um, but the revelation didn't happen. Um, that happened in the middle of teacher training. So. There was this exercise where, so okay, so the place it was called Purple Yoga. They're in Fullerton. Love those guys. Uh, they have a sequence that they teach you to new trainees, and this is like a hey, we worked this out. It's pretty good. It covers a lot of the body. Uh, it covers a lot of the common like weird like joint pains that people in America living you know desk working desk jobs may have. It'll cover all that stuff, and you get a good workout. You should know this as like a basis, as like a, something you can always go back to, so you don't have to like work out a new yoga sequence. But So you know, like learn the sequence, know why it works, and et cetera, etc. cetera. Uh, one of the exercises that we had was, okay, so we're just going to make sure we memorized it. Just go through the thing. Don't teach the pose, right? Because um, if you're new to yoga, or even if you're experienced, it'd be good to know like, hey, How give me the rundown of the fine details about how your feet should be placed, what muscles should be activated, and stuff like that. That wasn't the point. It was just to know, make sure if you knew the sequence or not. And people uh, would people started teaching the sequence, Hmm. and I was like, "What do you got?" That was totally not the instructions that was given. Mm -hmm. I want to go home. (laughs) We, (laughs) if everyone does this, we're going to be here. Goddamn forever. Yeah. Like, what the fuck, guys? <laughs> now, standing there going, like, why am I – these are my friends. Why am I angry at them? Yeah. You know? Then um, kind of the breakthrough and the revolution, the revelation was that, hey, it's because I like these guys a lot. That's kind of why I'm like, maybe angry isn't even the right word for it. Mm-hmm. A lot of these folks probably have not done any sort of public speaking in their lives. Right. And some of them admitted that. And they were terrified. They would say this mm-hmm. before the, the exercise. They've never taught anything, never had to speak in front of any group ever. Terrified. Yeah. And they just got scared and defaulted to something normal, right. comfortable. Well, that's what they did. That moment of empathy right there was like, ah, it's because they're scared. And I am not angry. I am just disappointed. Not at them, but at this, this, situ- this phenomenon, this situation. Um, they can do better. I know they will. And that's kind of... When I that clicked for me, that's what that feeling that I was feeling was. Uh-huh. And I thought about, huh, when have I ever – when have I felt that before? That sort of anger, but it's not really anger or disappointment. Not directed at any person and how they're performing is more about like kind of the situation. Mm-hmm. It sucks. Learning things and doing things for the first time is painful and I relate to that. Yeah. Uh, and I wish you didn't have to feel it. But you know, it's how it goes. You do, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was that was it. That's yeah. When you ask, did yoga have a big part to play in during grad school? Yeah. Yeah. That was what I learned about myself.
0: Yeah. That how happened... that how that make you think about grad school differently, or um, your your advancement, or anything like that? Well, I advanced. You had already advanced.
1: Well, no, 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 no. I I, I advanced fine.
0: Yeah. Right. But when you had that um, revelation, had oh, you already advanced at that point? Oh no no no. no. Okay.
1: No 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 no. Oh uh, that. Yeah, it did help a lot. Yeah, I don't mean to brag, but I fucking kicked ass. <laughs> <I>
0: kicked <laughs> nice. ass in
1: my advancement. and I kicked ass in my uh, defense as well. Nice. Like, like there just weren't that many questions that they needed to ask. Right. Um, because they were, were like comprehensive about yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, because I'd like to think, being a big picture guy myself, uh-huh. I thought about a lot of this stuff. You know, and um, you know, they try their best to stump me and stuff like that. Uh. And it, you know, but I was like, oh, and even if I didn't know the answer, I'd be like, hmm, you know, I don't know that's about, but I do know how to figure it out. Hmm, Maybe thinking about, I suspected this or that. That's kind of how I answered those questions. Uh, Tip for all of you uh, soon to be advancers, perhaps. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just if you don't know, then like know that you have to figure it out and know how you're going to figure it out. Right. By this point in your grad school career, you should have a plan to do all that stuff because we should all know by now. We don't know that much in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Right? And that's not a cynical, self-effacing, uh, like, imposter syndrome thing. There's just too
0: much knowledge out there and how we're going to know it all? You right? can't we know have, everything. I feel like yeah. that's such an important grad school lesson. Yeah. which absolutely. is, I mean, yeah. I, gosh. Sometimes going to graduate school will really make you feel... Like, really dumb. You don't know anything. Yeah. Because you're exposed to all of this stuff that in many cases is so esoteric and you come into it having no knowledge about it. Um, And yeah, you don't know any of it. You feel like such a fool. And then also, when you do know all of that material, at least for me, I know a lot of people share this feeling. Is like, okay, I do know nearly everything about this one esoteric thing, but at what opportunity cost? I don't know anything about like how to be an adult. I don't know anything about how to invest money. I don't. I don't know anything about that stuff because all I've been thinking about for the last five years, for the most part, with a few exceptions here and there, is uh, what's happening in sleep, how are our memories being replayed in sleep, and how how are these neurons turning over in our brain, and uh, yeah. So I can tell you, I can talk your ear off about that, but I couldn't tell you very much about international politics. It's, yeah. Um so that that also makes me feel really dumb. But yeah, I just uh, you do your best not to let that take over. Right, right. Um what was what were we getting at? Um Um well, you were talking about your oh, yeah, uh, all uh, other stuff advancement that we did. Yeah, and, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, the yoga um, stuff helped out and everything. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh yeah, so yeah, that's how that went. That's how that story went, but um yeah. No, it was fine. They were in there like talking for a real – deliberating for a real long time. Um, turns out they were talking about lunch or some stupid like that.
0: <laughs> I feel like they do that. I haven't – I've. I, yeah, I had my advancement and they, uh, they kick you out of the room and they, yeah. talk, they talk about you. It's funny. It's like I, I, I read in some book or saw in some movie, um, one of the worst feelings you can have is when you walk into a room – And you feel like everyone was just talking about you. It might be like Franz Kafka or something like that. This like paranoia thing. Uh, But it's funny in that instance, because you know, or at least you assume with good reason, that that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, that's why they kicked you out. Five really important people in your field, they're deciding your future and they've kicked you out to go talk about you. Uh, But I think there is a fair amount of just BSing. I think there's a fair amount of them talking about lunch or what they did over the weekend or what plans they have coming up, just to make you sweat a little bit.
1: Yeah, uh, I wonder <laughs> if that's the point now. Uh, but, uh, anyway,
0: but, yeah. Either way, when you when you come out on the other end, it feels good. Oh uh, yes, yeah, oh, feels really good.
1: It's a weight off your shoulders.
0: Yeah, for sure, and that does feel really good. But it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, you ended up seeing a therapist. Um, I feel like. I, I recommend that to everybody. Absolutely. Um, Me too. Because uh, I definitely was having problems earlier earlier in graduate school and uh, not doing a good job of addressing them. Um, and it was only after I went through a breakup with a girlfriend and we were living together and then moved into you – know, I had to like move out on my own. It wasn't necessarily like a bad or nasty breakup, but we were together for a long time. Uh, so, like, everything was falling apart, like you said, or at least it felt that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then I decided to go, and then I started to realize, okay, yeah, th- circumstantially right now there are a couple things. There's a lot of instability, and that's bad, but there's also some stuff that's been going on for a long time um, where I have all these feelings of, like, inadequacy about uh, my science and, like, not being as good as other people in the field and stuff like that, Uh that I wasn't addressing. It was only after I went to therapy and like see a therapist regularly now that uh, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on that. Um, so, yeah, now I'm like a huge advocate. Uh, and I feel like I'm coming out on the other end feeling pretty good, but I still love going to see my therapist. So, when I advocate this to other people and people say, ah, no, I'm, I'm doing pretty good right now. I don't think I need that. I'm like, eh, but it couldn't hurt. I've never, I've never gone, maybe I just got lucky, I have a great therapist. I've never gone and come out of there like, ah, you know, I wish I didn't just waste that that hour or whatever. Like, yeah, I didn't really need that or ah, I feel worse than when I went in. Always, I'm like, wow, that was a great opportunity to get some things off my chest, dive into some stuff that I haven't had an opportunity. It's what I said before, <laughs> kind of, it was a dead end, but I said self-reflection is really important and you can get so absorbed in work, research, that you don't have time for that. Absolutely. Um, therapy, you make time for that. You have to. You schedule it. It's an yeah. appointment in your calendar. You schedule you it, it yeah. If you don't show up, you might have to pay uh, money for a penalty for yep. not showing up or whatever. Um, Something about making a great, an appointment makes it's, it real. Yeah it's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think for people who can uh, meditate on a regular t- a basis, that's really good too. Although I think a lot of the idea there is you're not supposed to uh, – Ref- reflect too much necessarily you're sort of just supposed to let things happen but i think in general the idea is the same is that you're scheduling this time where you don't have to think about stuff that you have to get done uh and that will just yeah you don't have to make to-do lists you don't have to check things off the list you don't have to be in the middle of checking those things off the list you can just let it be and I think that's uh, really refreshing That'll end up benefiting your work it does for me. So I'm like a huge advocate. I'm glad you brought that up.
1: Is there something you want could you would you mind speaking about that a little bit when you went through if, you, if you're willing to share? yeah that.
0: absolutely. yeah, so I, I started like I said before I started seeing this therapist um, actually it was before uh, me and my girlfriend at the time broke up. Um, but things weren't really going so well. So a lot of those sessions were talking about that relationship. Then eventually that ended a couple months down the line. We started to talk more about work and things like that. Although we had talked about that throughout. Uh, and I realized that I do some things that I had I'd never realized before. So my therapist calls it uh, black and white thinking. Uh, some people call it binary thinking. Some people call it catastrophic thinking, which is like one thing goes wrong and you think everything is ruined. Yes. My um, therapist
1: called it catastrophizing. Yeah, well.
0: catastrophizing. Yeah. I think that's like the technical psychology term for it. Um, yeah, I do that all the time. And I started to realize it. And now I catch myself doing it all the time. And it's so nice to just have that awareness and say, it's okay. I Sure, I didn't get up or whatever. I missed an appointment earlier in the day. I'm uh, running late whatever things didn't go according to plan i didn't get to have my breakfast like i knew normally do something I, I popped a tire and i'm going to be late for something like it's okay life is going to go on i'm all right and that's something that i was not incapable of doing before therapy but i did i rarely did and now i do it frequently so that's just one thing there are a lot of other things too um that has really helped me with certainly There's something to
1: be said about having that cognitive tool. Yeah. That how it's, you know, it's defined now. This behavior within ourselves is defined, and now we can recognize it. It's hard to, like, because really, if you do something around that behavior, you just, it might have just been complete luck, right? Or some neuron decided to fire this way or that, and that's just how it happened. Yeah. Perhaps. But until you have like a, like a like a defined thing about cognitive processes, your own cognitive processes, yeah,
0: certainly, then you have some real power over it, yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard to catch the patterns uh, unless you have someone else uh, pointing them out to Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you're taking the time to self-reflect, and that's when you recognize you have certain patterns. Um, And, yeah, for me, therapy really helped with that. For a lot of people, I think it does. Like I said, I'm just uh, a huge advocate. Uh, and it's nice. I mean, if you're in grad school or an undergraduate, you usually have a lot of those services offered through your yeah. school or they'll refer you out to somebody. But I think it's something a lot more people should take advantage of. But I had the same kind of reluctance to go. Like you were saying, I mean, a lot of people do. But it's ironic because I actually, I got my degree, my undergraduate degree in psychology and oh, right. for a long time, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for a long time, I wanted to be a psychologist. Actually, I think if for some reason I couldn't be a neuroscientist, for some reason my PhD just got cut short, I'd probably go back to graduate school to become a practicing psychologist. So, it's so ironic. It's so hypocritical. They say like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to go help people who need the help that I can offer, but I, I never want to receive it.
1: It's got to be an order of magnitude worse if you want, if you are a psychologist, right? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that, that was actually something um, a therapist and I talked about the rel- reluctance to ther- go to therapy. Mm-hmm. And she'd even say herself, like, oh, I'm a therapist. Why am I going to therapy? Why haven't I figured this shit out? Which is, you know, hilarious to think about. Yeah. Right? It's like, yeah, but
0: f- fucking people, man. <laughs> <Their> <laughs>
1: brains, dude. Oh, no, man.
0: Yeah. We do all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. But. Hmm.
0: Yeah, but overall, that was a huge boon for me. I think uh, maybe if I didn't have that, I may have left uh, graduate school a few years ago. If I didn't have that, that was a really important uh, turning point, I would say, in my graduate career, yeah. Yeah, especially dudes, right? Yeah. Damn. Absolutely. There's just like this uh, toughness thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which – you know but yeah, it faded so quickly within 2 or 3 sessions i was i was the one who was like bringing it up i was like yeah i go to therapy it's awesome you should yeah. do it too oh, i'm glad <laughs> yeah if you're listening
1: definitely please check out those resources
0: yeah do it yeah even if you think you're fine it's it's you're right it can't hurt it can't it really it just it can't hurt i think you'll be surprised the things you learn about yourself. I was definitely surprised. Yeah, when you take the time to reflect and when you have someone else that you're sharing information with and they're more of an objective uh, viewer. A professional. Yeah, and and a professional. They can start to notice the patterns that you probably can't.
1: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely agree with you there. Okay, so with all this in mind, what's next for you when you're done with grad school?
0: This is year three, right, you said? No, this is year – I'm in my sixth year. Sixth Yeah. Why did I – okay, right, right, <laughs> right, right, right.
1: Right. Oh, shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, it's time. It's coming up. Um, yeah, so I'm aiming to – I just had a committee meeting. So, I met with all of my five faculty who are going to decide whether I get a, a PhD or not eventually. And uh, I proposed to them my plan for the next year or so, year and a half. And I want to graduate by December of 2020. Um, and they all seemed pretty okay with that. Uh, so I think that's the way that things will proceed. Um, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of work to do to figure out what's next. I don't have, I'm not dead set on anything right now. The leading possibility is that I'll go on to do uh, and be a postdoctoral researcher. Um, there are a couple of laboratories I'm really interested in working in. I think they do really great work. Uh, I think they'd be a nice place to get trained and start a real career as an academic. Um, the really cool thing about that. And I think uh, academia and science in general is there's a lot of opportunities to go different places. It's not like a certain geographical location has a real lock on any of these things. Uh, As far as I know, maybe there are some fields that are kind of dominated geographically in just one area, but I think a lot of fields in science in general are kind of uh, dispersed. Yeah, solvent um,
1: extractions like that, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Um, So, there are some labs on the East Coast where I'm originally from, um, back in New York area that I'd like to go work in. There's uh, one in Montreal. That would be pretty cool. There's a couple in Europe. In Switzerland and the Netherlands, I think that would be really fun to go there for a while, uh, and get trained by those people, and and experience a whole different culture, a different uh, geography, and you know, new languages and everything. I think that would be fascinating. Um, and then, but I have my options open. I'm not dead set on that. Uh, we're grad students. We're broke. I'm in my sixth year, and I'll be in my seventh year when I graduate. So. There's part of me that's like, uh, I'd like to maybe make a little bit of money for a while just to like stabilize myself for a bit. Yeah. Uh, especially I see a lot of friends from high school and things like that who already have good careers. Uh, they own restaurants, they're doctors, uh, they've been you know working in the finance for five years, six years, and they're doing pretty good. I don't really consider myself a materialistic person, but it'd be nice to be more comfortable than what I have now. So there's part of me that thinks that. So if I could find a job that pays pretty well outside of academia, that could be appealing. I I looked into this data science for a while, which is just basically trying to make sense out of data that all these different corporations uh, collect. And that's pretty cool. That's kind of like industry agnostic you can go work for an engineering firm. You could go work for a credit card company. You could go work for a bank. You could go work for some retail company and see try to find uh, patterns in uh, people's shopping habits, things like that. Uh, so yeah, I feel like as a scientist, we always have this like obsession with data and we like thinking about it. So that could be a cool thing too. Um, and then I haven't been looking into it too thoroughly but one interesting possibility is to go into sort of like a biotech uh, type field uh, and work on some of the things like the neural prosthetics and modifications that I was talking about earlier I don't think there are quite as many opportunities but there are cool companies like uh, Elon Musk has this Neuralink company I think it's called uh, where they have some neuroscientists on board there and they're trying to build these brain or nervous system uh, computer interfaces. Uh, there are some opportunities to work for the government um, and do those kinds of things. I, I have a relative actually who works for the government. He's a PhD in virology. He's always saying like, yeah, it's pretty good. You could work on some interesting stuff here. He keeps trying to get me to sh- show me around and introduce me to that. So that's cool. But all in all, a lot of opportunities and I think that's a great thing about PhDs in general, especially now. I feel like traditionally, especially in biological sciences, it was basic and social sciences. It was like, get PhD, try to become professor. That's basically it. There aren't many opportunities outside of academia. Now, I feel like people are, uh, PhDs are a little bit more valuable, a little bit more lucrative than they used to be uh, in demand. And, yeah, I'm excited to explore the possibilities. Awesome. We've covered a lot of ground,
1: but there's one more question I'd like to ask. When you have to stress eat, what is your go-to? So,
0: usually when I get stressed out, I don't eat that much. Ah, stress not eater. Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm a stress not eater. Um, But... That means I'm usually not cooking for myself. If I'm stressed out. I'm you know, busy with a lot of other things. I don't have time to cook for myself. My go-to is uh, Greek yogurt and chunky peanut butter. Just put them in a bowl, mix them together. I really like the texture. It's really cream, creamy and like you get a little bit of texture in there with the peanuts. Um, throw some bananas in there or sometimes I put strawberries in there. It's quick you don't have to cook anything you don't have to wash any dishes besides the bowl that you're eating in sometimes if i have a small thing of yogurt i'll just put the peanut butter right in there right and then you just have to throw it out in the recycling or the trash or whatever so it's convenient it's tasty uh and it's not it's not too unhealthy that is the
1: uh easily the uh most struggle meal bread <laughs> meal i've had on this show <laughs> matter respect to that <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's 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 not too fancy, but gets the job done. I I yes, I understand. Yeah, and I mean sometimes if I am really stressed out, and that's like I'll have that as like a full meal as a dinner. Yeah, it'll be in an enormous quantity, like an entire cereal bowl filled with that. Yeah, um, gotcha. true. You know, actually, it's kind of making me hungry for it right now. <laughs> yeah, I think with the strawberries and bananas really do it. Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, if you told me just. Yogurt and peanut butter. I'd be like, goddamn.
0: <laughs> I do that a lot too. Uh, it's not the ideal, but I yeah. do. I do it a lot. Too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Grad, grad life for you. Uh,
0: grad life. Yeah. Just trying to get by. Do what's convenient. Please eat well, guys. <laughs> Everybody should be eating well. Yeah, but yogurt and uh, peanut butter is
1: a lot of good stuff in there. It's yeah, honestly,
0: it's very. Uh, I feel like it's very efficient. Yeah. Oh no, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very like a peanut butter, especially. Mm-hmm. It's very nutritional. You don't want to eat it like all the time. High-quality fats. Because yeah, it. It, it is a lot of fat, but it's got high-quality fat, provides a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Greek yogurt is like God's gift to man. Yes, that it's I just, agree. It's just pure protein and it tastes pretty good. Uh, and it's a fairly low calorie, especially if you get the non-fat one. Man, I love that stuff. Yeah.
1: Well, it was fantastic talking with Thank you.
0: With you. Thanks for having me. Evidenced
1: by what's easily going to be like a one hour, 45 minute episode. All right. It's nice having
0: you. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me.